My name is Mason Kainrich. I am an historian of some minor fame, probably best known for my work on the Ignition, the term given to the destruction of the great city of Korriban. A little over a year ago, a man who claimed to be a survivor of Korriban's last days tracked me down. His name was Ciro Orente, and he had worked as a diplomat and spy in the city, and he told me bluntly that my book was wrong, and he was eager to tell me what really happened. The usual caveat applies that the vast majority of this is simply what Orente has told me, mixed with articles from newspapers, diary extracts, and more, to give a little more context and information. We ended the last episode with Captain Vasker escaping from zombies trapped in the myriad of tunnels that ran beneath the city, so I thought we should start with an extract from the manual given to all new members of the Legion. The section I chose was written by Captain Crasser, a figure almost as well known as Vasker herself. Extract from Captain Leon Crosser's How to Fight the Undead Before I joined the Legion, I had served in the Barist Army, and had seen my fair share of combat, but none of that prepared me for fighting the undead. These days, a soldier is taught a highly advanced form of warfare, usually designed to fight an opponent using that same form. 90% of that was useless in the Legion. The most useful thing I had been taught was how to reload quickly under pressure. You need to be able to reliably slide in new bullets as hundreds of zombies edge their way toward you. The first thing that you need to know about, which few people mention, is the sensory impact of the undead. When you actually encounter them, the sight, the smell, the sound of them is terrifying. There is also something else a strange feeling of despair that can take hold of you. I think it is by being confronted by a manifestation of death itself. This is the reason cavalry are a liability, as the Brotherhood found out to their cost. Animals will not confront the undead. Indeed, they will run in the opposite direction, ignoring all other factors. But it's not just animals. I have seen veteran soldiers, men and women who had faced down a thousand human foes, break in terror when dealing with the undead. It's not cowardice. Something gets in your soul. Second, the headshot is a myth. Yes, that will kill the undead, but so will many other wounds. It just takes longer. And they are able to function very well with mortal wounds. If you shoot a zombie in the stomach, it will die. But before it does, it certainly has enough time to kill you. The Barrington pistol was designed for a clear reason. A single shot that would do as much damage as possible. If you hit a zombie in the chest with the Barrington pistol, you'll kill it quickly. If you hit it in the leg, you'll probably take off the limb. Some people doubt the effectiveness of machine guns on the undead. My feeling is, if you've got a group heading toward you, machine gun fire will cut them down, then you just have to walk through the bodies and finish the job. Incapacitating zombies can be as useful as killing them outright. Fighting the undead will take you through every type of terrain, but unfortunately, large open areas, the kind most battles between humans are fought on, are rare. Open areas would allow heavy weaponry to be used effectively, to establish strong lines and defensive positions. I fought in what has been called the Battle of Cabell City. 
the week-long struggle to stop the undead. The city had not been evacuated, so we were fighting the undead hordes flocking to the city, trying to get the people out and dealing with those who had been turned. There were no secure areas. There's a strange phenomenon known in the Legion as proximity sickness. This is when in an area teeming with the undead, people who are injured, weak, or old can become infected. There is no research on this, but it does happen. Every legionnaire will tell you. And so in Cabell City, we were constantly dealing with outbreaks across the city. It was a nonstop week of fighting. But we prevailed. There is no official policy on what weapons a legionary should carry. Swords are popular, usually heavier blades than the kind still used in armies today. A lot of legionnaires like hammers and similar weapons. Despite the heroic image of a legionnaire decapitating a zombie, it's very hard to do that in one go. It's much easier to simply shatter the skull with a blunt weapon. Perhaps what has prevented the undead from defeating us is that they are slow. While speed varies from case to case, at best, zombies walk. Most do a form of shambling. Not only are they slow in their movements, they are unsteady and imprecise. The thought of a zombie that could run or jump is truly terrifying. There are a lot of myths about superhuman abilities zombies possess. They are not incredibly strong, their senses seem dulled, if anything, and their cognition is barely there and they are driven by instinct. But they are incredibly resilient. Wounds bleed little, or not at all. They either cannot feel pain or ignore it completely, they can last years without sustenance. While I have seen zombies drown, they can survive underwater far longer than a human. My advice would be never to fight zombies alone. But if you have to, hit hard and hit fast. After the main session in the morning, things were broken up into smaller committees to actually try and deal with these issues. Caesarea didn't have the resources to follow up on every meeting, not that anyone did, really, but I knew where I wanted to be. The three emperors, or their representatives, were trying to hash things out in one room, but with Devonier himself present, that was covered. I decided to follow Altassan. The Oridian First Minister was something of an icon to people in politics and diplomacy. Iridia wasn't as strong as the world powers, but because of Altassan's skill, they could compete. He was a political genius. But as much as he was admired, people were wary of him. Altassan had a way of manipulating people, and when they parted ways were convinced he was doing them a favor. Some politicians simply refused to be in the same room as him, and one Dakeshi minister insisted that Altassan submit proposals in writing, using the plainest and simplest language possible. Of course, Altassan's success and subsequent reputation had blunted these weapons somewhat as everyone was on their guard but he was still a titan. Oddly enough, Altassan had avoided the most important sessions that were taking place and instead had formed his own committee entitled The Age of War. I wasn't very surprised when the small panel were utterly overridden by Altassan, who effectively gave a speech to those who'd come to see him. Altassan put forth that since the beginning of the human race, there has been war. Before cities, before farming, before fire, there had been war. It could be said that that was the natural state of human beings. 
It was a state that, despite objections to the contrary, humans seemed to enjoy. The thing was, war wasn't terribly effective. The point was usually to get something. Land, slaves, money. But almost inevitably, there were more efficient ways to get it. So war didn't even really benefit the victor. Altassan therefore said that there must be something destructive in human nature. A desire to fight. The thing was, we were getting too good at it. And finally, the consequences of war had caused humans to stop and think. Altassan pointed out of a window and told us that not far from the city were three armies, highly trained soldiers with powerful weapons. Those in charge of these armies had objectives they wanted to achieve. And yet nothing happened. For years, decades, there had been no violence. Altassan saw this as a watershed moment when he argued that war could be abandoned for more effective ways of settling arguments. Much to the embarrassment of those who actually shared the table, he said that he didn't really think it would be grand congresses like this, but the application of things other than force, different kinds of pressure. Instead of settling things on the battlefield, they could be settled by clever diplomats, wily spies, genius scientists, hard-working industrialists, cunning economists. Fighting with actual weapons was barbaric to Altassan. He was also quick to point out, in his own blunt and cynical fashion, he didn't imagine some peaceful utopia, nor did his new vision mean the end of the strong exploiting the weak. It was an odd speech, and clearly some in attendance were disgusted or enraptured. Some maybe both. Personally, I thought Altassan was misguided. He imagined some rational being thinking things through carefully and being aware when they had lost. If Barristone outmaneuvered the Draven Empire in this new form of fighting, the Dravens would be quick to return to the old form. Still, it was interesting. And maybe if the whole world was made up of people who thought like Altassin, it would work. Iridia, a brief history by Ren Otho. The story of Iridia is one of progress against all the odds. Born as a poor amalgamation of lands and presented as a dowry for Princess Amelia Passant in the 11th century, it has since been torn apart, reassembled, and torn apart again. For a long time, the small kingdom found itself passed around various rulers, always felt of as something that could be given away in a treaty. Over these turbulent years, the Iridians became a stoic people, who were used to never being a ruler's priority and often just seen as a taxable resource or a useful buffer to an enemy. It wasn't until the 15th century when the territory passed to Casimir Laroda that it became a real country. Essentially, to understand Iridia, you need to understand Casimir. While he wasn't their first king, he is still seen by many as the founder of the country. The struggles that Casimir went through very much mirrored the struggles of Iridia. No other figure in Iridian history comes close to matching the significance of Casimir Laroda. Casimir should have been king of Dulot, but with his father dying only two months after his birth, and a rival claimant stole Laroda's kingdom, only leaving him the relatively insignificant Iridia. Fellow monarchs did not lift a finger to save Casimir's birthright, but they did insist the boy should be left with something, and so he ended up with Iridia. Casimir Laroda was passed around various courts as a child, his care depending on the ruler he stayed with, it ranged from disinterested luxury to disdainful squalor, with a couple of genuinely caring guardians. You might ask what had happened to Casimir's mother in all of this. She had caused too much of a fuss when her son had been disinherited. 
she was deemed to be dangerously unstable and prevented from seeing her son. The teenage Casimir finally managed a return to Aridia, still not ruling, but at least in better conditions. The day Casimir finally came of age, he sent a letter demanding the return of his mother, which after some negotiation and no little expense, Casimir managed to secure. The 16-year-old had surprised his fellow monarchs with his determination, as he would continue to surprise them for the next 34 years. Almost single-handedly, he forged his territories into a single, strong kingdom and raised Aridia's prestige to where it became a powerful player in international politics. But Casimir's story was far more interesting than that. Casimir was fiercely intelligent and intellectually curious to a level rarely, if ever, seen in a king. By his coronation, he spoke nine languages fluently and learned another seven over his reign. He created a cosmopolitan court, drawing capable people from across the world, disinterested in religion or race of his advisors. He wrote books on everything from falconry to philosophy and wrote several plays. Casimir even wrote a book he only ever intended for himself, but was his own personal reminder on how to be a good king and how to thrive in the cutthroat world of diplomacy. Casimir disdained pointless wars for glory and even managed to avoid the 12 years war which engulfed all of his neighbors. When Casimir finally died, he left a prosperous and successful state and provided a blueprint for all Iridian rulers who followed. The oath taken by all Iridian kings contains the line, May I equal the achievements of Casimir, greatest and best. First Minister Altison stated that he hoped to be as effective for his country as Casimir was. It had been an exhausting day, but it had been a good day. It's hard to explain the feeling you have of being at the center of world events. Well, perhaps not the center, but I was a participant. Not much had actually been achieved on this first day, but that was to be expected. People were setting out their stalls, their fake positions that they would give up to make it look like they were compromising. Allies watched each other to make sure friends would stay friends, and many enemies started looking at each other and thinking maybe there was someone they both hated more. As for Kasaya, I was confident we could achieve our rather modest aims. In terms of relations with the Big Three, we had always been most closest to Marika. Barristone might have seemed the more natural ally, but quite simply resentment ran high in that they dominated the seas, what had once been our domain. Marika was a country we could do business with, ran on reasonably sensible lines with a good respect for trade. Our ambassador had made it clear that we would take a largely pro-Marikan line. Ideally, we would see the city of Korriban fall under Marikan control, if only to frustrate Barristone. This also seemed possible, as many suspected Barristone's chief interest was in preventing the Draven Empire from having the city. Again, not for any sound political or strategic reason, just the Dravens were their chief rival, and it would frustrate them. Such childish games are often the truth to high-stakes diplomacy. I was again staying at my rooms in the embassy, as we would likely be working late for the next day, but I decided to call to my apartment to pick up a few things. As I stepped through the door, I felt something press against the back of my head, and I was given a clear instruction not to move. It was Vasca. She shut the door and I spun round, planning to grab the gun. I failed, and she cracked me on the head with the butt of a pistol. I wound up on the floor, one hand pressed to my head. Vasca sat down, placing her gun, still held firmly in her hand, on the table, 
pointed in my vague direction. She asked me one question. Did I know? I had no idea what she was talking about, but working in espionage, you get used to people asking such vague questions. After all, it was possible I did know. I knew about Kassarian illegal trading in Korriban ports. I knew that it had been Kassarian agents who had poisoned Colonel Jan Mok. I knew a lot of things that someone could point a gun at you for. Helpfully, Vasker elaborated with a single word. Zombies. Vasker must have realized that I didn't know, and explained what she had seen. I thought back to my time in the tunnels. When I'd hid in the darkness and someone had found me and attacked, had that been a zombie? It seemed impossible, but Vasco looked entirely serious, and in fairness, this was her area of expertise. I paled and felt fear take over me. I was no coward, but zombies were something else, and I told Vasco she had to go to the authorities. She laughed in disgust. In a city as corrupt as this? After all, who would be able to hide zombies in the tunnels in the first place? I could see her point, but why not tell her superiors in the Legion? They burned it down, said Vasco. For the first time, Vasco appeared to be in a bad state. She might have been crying. She had certainly been drinking. They burned down the Legion house, she said, and explained that had been her first thought. But when she had found her way back there, the building was an inferno. There were no survivors. We're going to sort this out. I don't want to hear about your career, the Congress, or anything else. Now you're with me, or... I wasn't entirely sure if Vasco meant she would abandon me, or there was some sort of implied threat. It didn't matter. I was with her, and I told her so. She smiled, and then asked for my help in popping her shoulder back into place. City of Fire by Professor Gavin Calder Fires are common in Korriban. The city's force of firefighters predates the police and it has long been the nightmare of many a homeowner. For thousands of years, Korriban has been a huge and cramped city, and it is only relatively recently that any thought was given to rational city planning. Streets were too close, houses built of cheap wood, and there was little, if any, regulations to prevent fires. To many, it was like the crime, or the rubbish, just part of living in a big city. Many of the city's greatest monuments have been lost to fire. The unique temple the Palace of Memories, the Silver Bastion, all gone. There have been four genuinely catastrophic fires in the city. Tens of thousands of people left after the fire of 1459, believing the city would never recover. The fire in 289 saw the people tear Emperor Javalka limb from limb, believing the fire to be divine punishment from the gods for his truly outrageous and despicable behavior. Even in recent times, fire insurance is not something that can be bought in Korriban, but there are numerous charitable foundations that will help survivors. The city's residents fear fire more than enemy armies or plagues, perhaps believing they can withstand them. A supposedly ancient prophecy suggests the city will one day be completely destroyed by fire. But other prophecies say earthquakes, barbarians. There's a prophecy for every kind of disaster that can befall a city. Last time we had our first glimpses of the infected, and now we have fire. While it is hard to find such details merely days before Korriban was destroyed, I have found a couple of references to the burning down of the city's Legion House. 
Apparently, the building was engulfed in flames surprisingly quickly. One moment, someone on the street noticed smoke, and the next, the building was an inferno. It could, of course, be a coincidence. As already stated, fires were common in Korriban. Alternatively, if Ciro had known about the fire, he could have twisted his story to include what are verifiable facts to add weight to it. If the Legion house had not been burned down, things would have gone very differently. When the Legion talked about the infected, people listened, and a warning by those stationed in Korriban would have caused problems for those behind this conspiracy. Whether it was a dreadful accident or part of a terrible plot, all those in the Legion house died. The Reignition Theory was created and written by Richard Norton. The show's audio engineer is Jamie Stoffer. Anyone wishing to contact Jamie can send an email to jlsaudiobooking at gmail.com or find Jamie on Instagram at jls underscore audio. Mason Kainrich was played by Mike Queller. Mike is also the host of the Weird Tales podcast. Find it at theweirdtalespodcast.podbean.com. Siri Orente was played by Graham Rowett. Find Graham on Twitter at GrahamNY. G-R-A-H-A-M-N-Y. Leon Krasser and Ren Ovo were both played by Brenna Hines. To contact Brenna about voiceover work, please send emails to brennahinesvo at gmail.com. Professor Gavin Calder was played by Norelli Shesh. Find Norelli on Twitter at FirewordSparkler. Sparkler.